Welcome to today's show. My name is Glenn Deason. Uh, I'm a professor at the University of Southeastern Norway. Uh, with me is uh, Alexander McCurris of the Duran podcast. And uh, the guest today is Professor Jeffrey Roberts, um, who's a very renowned historian who studied Stalin and Soviet military history for many decades now and producing excellent work. Uh, so uh, welcome, Jeffrey. Thanks. Thanks very much for the invitation. And good to see both of you again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Likewise. Uh, so uh, today, the, the topic of discussion is uh, the change in continuity in Russian history, which often is a key uh, a disagreement or an argument uh, which many return to, uh, both in its history and its foreign policy. So looking a bit at Tsarist Russia, Soviet Russia and the current Russia. And But uh, yeah, before we start this topic of change and continuity, I thought we could briefly uh, address your recent book, which is called Stalin's Library, uh, Dictator and His Books. Um, and yeah, the first chapter has uh, a yeah, catchy title as well, uh, Bloody Tyrant and Bookworm. Uh, so what, uh, just uh, for anyone who hasn't uh, got a copy, I would really advise mm -hmm. to get a, one right away. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, but I was wondering, uh, what did you learn from researching uh, Stalin's uh, vast library? Okay, so, so, so the book is um, about Stalin's life as an intellectual. Um, which I explore through the medium of um, his personal library, his book collection, and in particular, the kind of things he wrote in the books that he read, the marking, uh, the markings that he makes. So, so it's, you know, it's an intellectual portrait of Stalin as a reader, also to a certain extent as an editor uh, and, 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 uh, and as a writer. What did I learn? Well, I learned lots of things. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, firstly, Stalin was um, a serious intellectual. That's the first point to make. Um, took ideas very seriously He's, you know ideas you know in one sense ideas were for Stalin um uh, everything right uh, now saying he was a serious intellectual not not to say that he was a great intellectual or very profound intellectual I, I don't think he was but but he, he certainly had a lot of qualities uh, as uh, as an intellectual yeah the second the second thing I learned was that Stalin's you know communist ideology uh was hundred percent authentic you know having worked through all this material in his personal library and all kinds of other stuff as well. No doubt whatsoever about the authenticity of Stalin's belief in Marxism, uh, belief in communism, or the fact that he was, he considered himself to be uh, an, uh, an idealist uh, and, and a utopian, right? And, and the third thing, the third thing I learned, and, and this, this, this was, actually this was really a kind of new, a real kind of like revelation for me, was that how emotionally committed and intellectual Stalin was, yeah? The emotional uh, power of ideas from him, his emotional fervor through his ideas, as well as his political, ideological, and theoretic, theoretic, theoretical fervor. So, so, um, so Stalin really cared about ideas. He really, really cared. Um, and, and it seems to me that that emotional aspect of Stalin's identity as an intellectual is very important to understanding some 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 of the less um, savoury aspects of Stalin. You know, like Stalin, you know, as as a brutal di dictator, of course, yeah, he was an intellectual, but he was also a, a tyrant as well, a brutal dictator. But you can't understand 
how Stalin was able to operate as a brutal dictator and sustain brutal repressive rule over m- m- many decades without understanding Stalin as, as a particular kind of intellectual. I have to say, I mean, I read the book. I find it absolutely absorbing. I, I'm also going to say something else. I've never come across a book which brought me so close to Stalin the man. Stalin the person. I mean, you once read so many books about Stalin, but this is one where you actually get a real sense of the human being behind, you know, all the sort of, you know, the the images, the statues, the things, other things people have said. And there's a number of things. And this is, of course, I now go back to my time when I was studying Russian and Soviet history, you know, as an undergraduate all those years ago. And the thing, firstly, I mean, the view that I was think was very, very common at that time was that Stalin was a cynic, that he was a very cynical figure, that he used Marxism, that behind it all there was this very manipulative individual who was playing with people and playing with ideas. And of course, Turns out he wasn't like that at all. And again, this comes back to your point about how emotionally invested in his ideas he was, and how the extent to which his ideas are true. And of course, it, I think, demolishes the myth of many of those famous quotes one reads about Stalin that one comes across all the time, and which still form many people's views of him. You know, one, most of these are apocryphal. I suspect they're not just apocryphal. I think they're probably invented, actually, because that's not the sense of the man one gets. And the second is that, you know, he was out to compete with Lenin and he was out to sort of project himself as, you know, somebody who was at least equal to Lenin or even greater than Lenin. Not the case at all. He's somebody who sees himself profoundly so as Lenin's follower. The third, which is uh, what a didactic figure in some ways he is. I mean, you talk about Stalin the intellectual, you talk about Stalin as the uh, um, emotionally invested person, the, the, the person who's also the editor, he's always, always like editing everything. There's a lot about him which I found reminded me very much of a head teacher at a certain type of school. He sets assignments, <laughs> he receives essays, he's marking all the essays all the time, coming up with corrections, he's giving lessons. And I, I wonder whether this is also partly, you know, without him perhaps intending or thinking about this, it was partly uh, something that helps to explain in a society which is people are quite quite young it's a sort of group of people are very young and many of them are going to school for the first time education is expanding and you have this very didactic person out there you know telling them what they should think what they should read you know setting all the you know the courses if you like and I wonder whether this is partly the attraction. And I, I, you know, if you look at some of the imagery that's, you know, around Stalin at that time, I mean, you know, there's, there's a famous, I, I'm sure you've seen it, a film of him 
meeting metro workers, for example, then it's a bit like a sort of prize giving event in some ways. He gives out prizes. He gives out Stalin prizes and all that kind of. And um, there's also this period when he's you know, referred to as the great teacher. <laughs> I wonder whether this aspect of him might have been overlooked a little, perhaps not so much in his own mind, but in terms of the way in which the larger Soviet society received him. That, that, that's that's very, uh, very interesting, Alexander. You know, one of the things I love about writing books, you write a book and you sell all kinds of things in it and other people come along and they read it and they find all kinds of things in the book that you weren't quite quite aware of. So, so, uh, so I really love your analogy with Stalin uh, as uh, as a headmaster. I think that's brilliant. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, didactic. That's a good word. Yeah, he was a didactic um, intellectual. That was his strength as an intellectual. Was he? He was didactic, and he was very good at it. And he was able to um, appeal to all kinds of uh, um, interact with effectively with all kinds of different uh, audiences. You know, party bureaucrats, intellectuals, party activists, ordinary ordin ordin ordinary people. Yeah. So, so Stalin, the, the didactic intellectual. I think that's a very very good way of thinking of him. It's funny you should say about you read the book and it, it, it brought you closer to Stalin. Um, and the same, the same was true of me. That, 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 was, that was my experience in actually writing the book. It, it wasn't until I wrote this book that, okay, I've written books about Stalin before. <laughs> Lots about Stalin, yeah. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until I got to the end of writing this book that I actually felt I had actually, for the first time in 50 years, actually got, got close to Stalin. And, and, and maybe, maybe it's an illusion. Maybe it's, I'm, I'm fooling myself. But... It got to stage where I actually think, uh, you know, think and feel that I understand Stein, understand him, what he was like, what made him tick, all of that, all, all of that kind of thing. Yeah. One always thinks. But, but just one more point about that. Yeah, yeah. And one of the reasons I wrote this book was uh, I wanted to. Um, I, 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 I wrote it because I didn't want. I wanted to write a wide-ranging book about Stein. But I didn't want to write a biography, partly because there were so many biographies out there, and also partly because I thought it'd be a huge amount of work to write a serious biography of Stalin. Mm -hmm. So I took on this project about 10 years ago when this particular source became available and more accessible to me, which is his, his, his private book collection, with the idea, OK, I, I can write my wide-ranging book about Stalin, mm -hmm. take it... Um, take in any direction I want uh, without being encumbered but weighed down by the idea I'm sorry if you're writing a biography mm. of Stalin but as it turned out effectively I did I have written a biography this is my okay this is my study of Stalin as an intellectual his personal library his books Stalin's reader all that kind of thing but it's also my 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 my, my biography of uh, uh Bob Stalin so so there's actually there's, there's a lot of good value in in, in this book <laughs> it, 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 it operates at multiple levels but for me as well as the readers Absolutely, because one of the things you do in this book is, I mean, you, you go back, you look at his past in ways that people have not been doing recently. You know, you put the whole business, for example, of his poetry, which some people make a great deal of. And you put that in its, I think it's absolutely correct context. Also, why he was not particularly keen on promoting it later, because, of course, it's ideologically unsound. He might have felt embarrassed by it for other reasons but surely that was one and also some of the stories you know that one has about his past his early childhood which i think correctly you say people are looking for explanations there and 
discovering things or think that they're discovering things which go beyond the facts that we actually have and i think that was again an, an enormously useful um, exercise actually uh, for me as i said i i as somebody who was brought up with Deutsch's biography you know all those years sure. ago um, it, 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 it does come across as a biography of course one gets us the feeling of the man one can always I, I could almost smell his library actually he's 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 study his books all around him the sort of musty smell the smell of his pipe probably as he was probably puffing away and reading his books <laughs> I, I i got i got to feel that close to him which i have never got to feel that close to him in any other book that i've read starting with deutsche all the way to people like okay Arch, getty and people like that i mean okay uh Thanks for the compliment. It's brilliant to hear, hear you say these kind of things. Of course, the advantage I, I had over a lot of previous people who've written most of them, obviously someone like Deutsche, was the, the, the huge amount of documentation yeah. and confidential information. Uh, I have, but also this particular source where, you know, starting reading his books, his lone personal book collection, and marking them in various ways. You know, it's the most intimate, the most personal kind of source, the most spontaneous source we have uh, about, about Stalin. So, so yes, yeah, so, so my ability... To, you know, to get close to Stanley is, is very much, um, you know, dependent on the availability of this huge amount of uh, of source material. But the other point is that as a historian, I'm very oriented to sticking to the facts, sticking to the documentation, sticking to uh, the evidence. You know, uh, and, 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 and if the evidence is not there, then I, then I, I, I just exclude and I just focus on what the evidence uh, contains. And I can't, can't tell you the number of hours, weeks, months even, I spent tracking down various claims about Stalin, various anecdotes, various quotes that are attributed to him, various documents that are attributed to him. Uh, and then you get to the end and you find that, 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 that this stuff doesn't exist. You know, it's, actually, it's, just, it's just mythology, it's legend, it's whatever. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask, is there any, well, 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 is it challenging to be an historian within uh, this area, though, of uh, Soviet military history? Because I'm thinking with the, you know, the, the Cold War, we have almost all, all of history become very polemic, where, you know, it's, it's like Stalin on one hand, uh, you know, uh, you know, cynical, into cynical power politics. The other aspect is, uh, you know, he's as authentic, uh, genuine belief in these ideas. He's a brutal, uh, you know, dictator but it also has an important role in terms of uh, liberating Europe from fascism so uh, given that you have these difficult positions because often I feel whenever one does research on anything related to Russia or Soviet Union it's always uh, you know boils down to well what does that mean is it supporting or is he opposing yeah. uh, do you experience a lot of this in uh, as a historian sure 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 it's it's, it's quite it's quite challenging um of course you know what I'm trying to do, I'm not, I'm not trying to justify Stalin or take a political position in relation to Stalin or Stalinism or this or that bit of Soviet history. I, I'm, I'm trying to explain things. I'm trying to, you know, create some understanding and 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 share that on the basis of of the evidence that that's, that's available to me. But but quite often when I do that, people people kind of confuse you know, my my efforts at explanation, understanding with sympathy and support and endorsement of, uh, uh, in, in relation to Stein. And, and, but even though, you know, I, I go to great lengths um, 
<laughs> in all my writings, in all my books, particularly about Stalin, to make it absolutely clear that, 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 that you know, in explaining Stalin, I'm not necessarily rational, rationalizing, uh, rationalizing mm. Stalin. Yeah, and the same is true in this latest book. You know, I go, mm. I go out of my way to make the point that. You know, to bring into focus all the stuff about Stalin's a brutal dictator, about the Great Terror, about the millions of people who died as a result of his rule. It's, it's actually there, and actually, the great deal of detail. But still, people come along and review the book, and they accuse me of uh, of ignoring Stalin as a mass murderer, or ignoring Stalin and the terror, of not of not dealing with this, not dealing with that. When it's actually there in black and white. So, so what do you do? What I mean, I, I, what do you do? Well, what you do is you study the topic, and if you study the topic, you understand better why Stalin did do the terrible things sure. that he did. Absolutely. Because you understand that this is not a cynic, this is not, a, you know, if he had been a cynical dictator, he probably would have killed fewer people. The fact is, he was not a cynical dictator. He was somebody who absolutely believed in what he was doing, uh, was convinced in the rightness of what he was doing, and that made him ruthless in ways that more, shall we say, cynical or self-doubting people would not be. I mean, that's the other thing that comes across with Stalin for me from this book, is that this is an individual with an incredible lack of self-doubt about what he's doing. He completely believes in his cause. He gradually, despite, you know, his real, you know, sense of his own limitations as a human being. And that's another thing, by the way, he... Uh, it brings out the reality of the of the cult around him uh, and how his own relationship to his own cult, his own scepticism about his own cult. But at the same time, I say, one senses that he never has any doubt that he is the right person in the position that he is in, in order to carry this thing, this great project forward. And he's prepared ultimately to sacrifice uncounted thousands millions perhaps in order yeah. to achieve that project which as i said if you don't understand that about stalin you don't understand what stalinism was and you don't understand what happened so no way is it any kind of apology or justification it is yeah. an explanation an, an explanation of the man behind the events that we all know <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, my, my fundamental take on Stalin is that you know, you know, it, it wasn't his personality that made him a bad person. In the sense of some of the things, many of the things that he did, it was his politics and his ideology and how he pursued that in a particular um, historical situation. I, I'm not quite sure about this thing about cynicism. Yeah, I, I, I don't think Stalin was a cynic, but I didn't mean that he couldn't be cynical, particularly in relation to the foibles of, of other human beings. But he was also, you know, he was very suspicious. He was very um, unforgiving. You know, he had a lot of like you know, bad aspect to his to to to, uh, to, to, to his personality. But yeah, but. Fun Fundamentally, you're right. Yeah, um, Stalin's yeah, Stalin's self belief and his commitment to his ideology, his politics, his goals, his project, you know, Soviet Socialism, is, 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 is absolutely fundamental. It's actually, it's actually, it's, it's quite amazing. But, but actually, there's one thing about the, about my personal experience that bears on writing this book. Um, and it's you know, uh, you know, I, I, I was a Marxist myself. Yeah. So I, I think that that um, it gave me some kind of insight into you know, 
into Stalin's idealism, his utopianism, and his embrace of uh, of, of Marxist uh, Marxist theories. On the points that, uh, well, a couple of points that I always like to make about Stalin, when I say, "What's the pri- What's what?" What surprised you about Stalin doing this research in this particular book? There's two, two, two things. Firstly, that Stalin's personal library, very similar to my personal library, <laughs> at least the one I had in the 1970s and 1980s. Not necessarily in the same books, but uh, because his library was mainly Russian, mine was, his mainly, was mainly English. But in terms of the kind of topics that it's, it's dealt with, it, and the topics that Stalin, all the different Marxist stuff, that Stalin was interested, I was interested, and I collected books like him, uh, like he did. So very, very similar sort of library holdings. But the second thing was that Stalin, you know, I, I, I don't about you two, but I, I'm someone who marks books as well. You know, I, I annotate books. Stalin's annotation of, of his books is very, very similar to my annotations of my books, except that he, he generally was much neater than I am, and he was much more controlled and much more pur- purposeful. I'm a bit more like random, a bit, bit untidy about my my, my annotations. Mm. Which which is a good en- entry to a further point, which is perhaps we sort of shift the discussion a little because we're talking about change and continuity in Russian policy. And of course, what we see in Stalin is certainly a, 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 a bigger element of continuity, but also of fundamental changes, because we are going from a situation under Tsarist, in Tsarist Russia where we have a people who are running Russia with a, an ideology, who have an ideology and a world outlook that is profoundly and completely different to Stalin's. And of course, that must affect the way in which there's also a change. <laughs> it's You can't simply say, which is, by the way, something that, again, people used to say when I was studying all of this as an undergraduate all, all, along, all along, you know, well, that actually there's more continuity than change in Soviet policy. Clearly, there is a huge change. I mean, clearly, Stalin sees the world in a completely different way than the way in which Tsarist foreign ministers and prime ministers, people like Stolipin, Vita, those sorts of people would have seen it. Right. The, the foreign policy, though, seems to have had a lot a lot of continuity, at least for if you're considering that this is a Marxist revolution, everything is supposed to be transformed. Uh, I don't know. Um, uh, I, I would almost see more continuity than change, perhaps, from the Tsarist mm-hmm. to Stalin, but I'm, I'm not sure. Um, again, a, a bit of both. But, but what kind of continuities do you see, Glenn? Uh, the same challenges of uh, uh, the, yeah, the, the external environment. Uh, but again, um, uh, well, I'm, I'm thinking that in initially, the, a lot of the assumptions was that uh, the Soviet Union shouldn't effectively even have much of a foreign policy as it would be in, in more of an internationalist uh, uh, project. But uh, it, it seemed to, uh, well, more or less quickly take on uh, uh, yeah, a more traditional uh, foreign policy. Right. It, it's interesting that you raise this question about, you know, Continuity in uh, you know Tsarist Russian Soviet foreign policy because a few months wait well, 2022 autumn of 2022 um, I actually wrote a paper and did a presentation <laughs> about this the, the, this this particular uh, kind of, uh, theme and, and it was actually the first time um, 
I'd have a sat, I'd ever sat down and in a kind of systematic way dealt with this particular this quick particular ongoing you know discussion all the time um, and the, the reason I, I I'd never done it before was basically I was um pretty skeptical about the, the whole idea of framing our understanding our explanation of Zorro's foreign policy, Soviet foreign policy, and then post-Soviet foreign policy in terms of discontinuity and discontinuity kind of conception because, because it's, it, 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 it struck me that a lot of the discussion about continuity and discontinuity is basically a political come ideological discussion. It's about trying to characterise uh, the Soviet or Russian or post-Soviet foreign policy in a particular way and, and drawing on themes of continuity or discontinuity um, to, 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 uh, to, 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 justi to, just, to justify that. Second thing that struck me about the discussion was that it's very like, um, I take to use these kind of jargon words, it's very um, essentialist, yeah, and this kind of concept that you have these patterns, continuities, forces at work, um, and, and, you know, they, they, they come from somewhere else other than the human agents who are actually, who are actually um, um, engaging in action, which create these patterns, yeah? And my perspective, you know, when I was doing my, my research on Soviet foreign policy, extensive research on Soviet foreign policy, I never ever felt the need, and, and based on detailed studies of Russian archives and so on, I never ever felt the need to reach out for some essentialist theory about change and continuity mm -hmm. in order to explain what I was trying to, to explain. You know, is the, is, the, is the, the explanation is to be found in the unfolding story of, 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 of human thinking and action in particular contexts, right? Mm -hmm. Creating a kind of narrative, in this case, a, a narrative of, 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 of foreign policy. So uh, it, it, I, I'm not quite, quite sure what the fun, mm -hmm. you know, what use the discussion is, except to point up, yeah, there are, let me just finish this point, yeah, no, <laughs> there are various, there are various patterns, there are various continuities, yes, there are various uh, uh, consistencies, and that discussion it, it, it is, is one way of highlighting what they are, but let's not confuse, let's understand what they are, what, what, you're, what, what, those, what those patterns, consistencies, continuities are, they're just descriptions, yeah, descriptions arising out of, of human action. Okay, I know it's a bit confused, but maybe Alexander can, uh, can, well, can bring well, some clarity perhaps, to the discussion. Well, perhaps, I mean, <laughs> that's perhaps, but anyway, let, 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 let me go back. I mean, again, I'm taking this to some extent from Deutsche, and, you know, I accept that, you know, things may have moved on a great deal since I was reading Deutsche all those years ago. But I think a point is this. I mean, you know, you have two completely different groups of people who are both in charge of Russia, but it is Russia. It's the same country located in the same place. It's um, a great power before it becomes a great power again. I would argue it's a great power still for all its many, many problems. And of course, as a country, <laughs> that inevitably results in certain challenges that the people who have to make policy in Russia have to confront these challenges. And some of those challenges are very similar to each other. And those responses to these challenges are often very similar as well. I mean, there was one particular thing that came across, for example, in this 
in, in Stalin's library, and which is Stalin's apparent frankness about the fact that you know he's created this belt of states, communist states, west of Russia, as a sort of shield for the Soviet Union because of the war. He and his um, lack of understanding about well, maybe I'm going too far here, but anyway, his exasperation that the Americans, whom he still wants to have some kind of rapprochement, some sort of deal with, that the Americans can't see that. They can't see why for him and for Russia, this is in effect an essential national interest, that they have to do these things, even if America might not perhaps fully approve of them. And, you know, what one gets the sense that, you know, for the Russians, worrying about their Western borders. They were doing that in the run-up to the First World War. They were doing that again in the 1940s, and they're doing that still, which is one of the reasons why we have these problems that we do. And these problems are there, they're continuous, regardless of the nature of the regime. I think I think yeah I think yeah, this 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 is where we get yeah. to the heart of the difference yeah yeah there are these like material realities yes which the human actors have to respond to in some way yeah but my argument is it's how they respond to them that actually shapes the particular pattern right the particular sequence the particular outcomes of of, of what happens because they're all different kinds of alternatives right i mean glenn mentioned earlier at the beginning he said well of course you know when the bolsheviks first took, took power um you know they had this idea of a world revolution of revolutionarizing the international politics overthrowing diplomacy absolutely right right and had the Bolsheviks continue with that particular policy, there would have been a completely different set of outcomes from what we know to be the outcomes, post-revolutionary outcomes. But they didn't. They chose They chose peaceful coexistence, cohabitation. Uh, they chose to engage in traditional diplomacy, actually had a foreign policy. And of course, they end up doing doing things and reacting to similar ways that their, 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 their czarist predecessors did. But it's actually, it's the human action element that's determinant here. It's not these underlying factors. So, so I think that, that's, the, that, that's, that's the point I'm trying to make. Now, interestingly, going back to Stalin, Stalin, of course, had, um, yeah, Stalin saw the Soviet system as being you know, a radical break with, with Tsarism in, in every kind of way. But he did see one huge historical continuity uh, between Tsarist times and Soviet times. And that continuity was the struggle for the defense of the Russian peoples against outsiders, against foreigners, the struggle to construct and maintain a strong state. Now, that, of course, is very quite clearly a current <laughs> theme, isn't it, of Putin's foreign policy, very, very clearly. Yeah, but look, the continuity doesn't come from some essentialist underlying reality, right? It comes from, it's a construction, it's a human construction. It was a construction by the Tsars, and it was a construction by Stalin, and it's a construction by, by, by Putin, which is not to say that there isn't something to that construction. And you know, <laughs> the argument, what, what they're saying about the threats to Russia historically, and, yeah, there, there's a reality there, it's not just an, an invention uh, in that sense. But you see what I'm saying? I'm always going back to the human action element, the, 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 the role of human beings in creating these patterns and continuities and trends that, that we actually, we, 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 we think we see. 
I mean, absolutely. And can I can I just say that I mean, if we'd had, which is inconceivable, but you know, let's just do the thought experiment. If we'd had a czarist government in the kind of position that Stalin found himself in in 1945, well, they would not have created identikit attempted to create identikit communist type governments in Eastern yeah, Europe, yeah. which of course is a fundamental cause yeah. in so many ways of what happened since. I mean, you, you can't separate that fact. So, and in fact, if you go back to Zarist foreign policy, I don't know, I'm sure you all read Dominique Levin's book, which I did sure. find interesting, Vers la Flamme. I mean, one of the things that, again, I start with, for example, is that the Zarist government was not looking to destroy Austria-Hungary, for example. They understood that, you know, Austria-Hungary had lots of problems. It wasn't entirely friendly to Russia, but it was stable. That You know, there was support for the emperor within the system. And that, frankly, blowing it up, changing it in that kind of way, would be more destabilizing, ultimately, in the European system than not. Now, again, it's difficult to imagine Stalin responding in exactly that kind of a way if yeah. he had been presented with a situation like that. So that there are differences. But I mean, I do think there are also, you know, they do always have to face this problem of the West, the West in aggregate, richer, more powerful, um, having attitudes to Russia, which are not always friendly, sometimes extremely unfriendly. And they have to find ways of responding to that. And another thing that I came across reading this book, and also from your other books, by the way, is that I don't get the impression of Stalin as somebody who was looking, all things being equal, for, to use military aggression to expand his zone. I mean, he didn't initiate the Second World War. That wasn't something that he was planning to do, you know, mid-1935. You know, he says, how am I going to spread socialism? I'm going to start this huge advance into Europe. He's responding to challenges. And, you know, I, I get the sense that this is perhaps something else that links up with, Russian policy before the revolution, during the Soviet period, once it, you know, get once they get past their sort of revolutionary messianism, you know, the early 20s, um, and later, that what they're really always <clears throat> wanting is to be left alone and, and to try and secure their borders and to sort out their problems and, in fact, to come to some kind of um, understanding with the Western powers. They're not actually, as so many people assume, an aggressive expansionist state, if not, if only because their own problems are so great that they have to focus on those. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, that is a, that is a, a persistent pattern, continuity from, you know, Tsarist foreign policy, Soviet foreign policy, post-Soviet foreign policy. It's defensive, reactive, uh, pragmatic character. Um, military action, use of military force, always being considered as a last result, not a not 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 a first result. Asserts for you know accommodation, compromise, and you know uh, politics as a means to actually secure your goals. Absolutely, that 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 that. 
that's a continuity. But that's a continuity that arises from the choices that you know, Cyrus leaders and, and Soviet leaders, Stalin, and also what post post uh, uh, post Soviet leaders. Yeah, so so it's an interesting uh, in, interesting uh, kind of uh, ob- observation, a very important observation to make if you're actually trying to understand. For example, what's going on now, you know, and what's going to happen in the future? Because if you if you view that that pattern from a different perspective, if you don't see it as defensive, reactive, uh, if you see it as aggressive, expansionist, imperialist, then of course you'll have a very different conception of what's going on and what's going to 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 to, to happen in the future. Absolutely, yeah. Well, that's the thing with Russia, the- history being so varied that people tend to pick out the uh, bits and pieces of Russian history which. Uh, um well uh, supports the conclusion they want to reach about today's policies but but it does bring up a, an interesting area topic though which is uh, the extent to which you know the present is informed by the past so you you mentioned um yeah the the, the policies today i mean how do you see uh, uh, the government of putin for example to what extent is this in, informed by uh, any, anything from the past i know it's it's very popular in the West to say, you know, to compare to Stalin, but that's simply because, you know, we use Stalin as a boogeyman, I think. But uh, but beyond that, uh, how do you see Putin's approach, uh, not just foreign policy, but uh, uh, how he sees, you know, international society and, and Russia's role in this? Do you see any, um, uh, yeah, did you see any clear uh, continuity or from the past, or do you see a significant break or what? Well, what's your perspective? Well, yeah. <clears throat> well, Putin's a Putin's a very historically minded leader, isn't he? Yeah, um, and he's like <clears throat> his view of the past, and his his concept that the patterns of past history and uh, and patterns in, in particularly in Russian Western relations very very influential in shaping his view of what's going on, on in the present. So, so one one of his current things, you know, in the last year or so, <laughs> has, has been <clears throat> the perception that the West is out to destroy Russia. And is that to break up Russia? Yeah, to deconstruct the the, the, the Russian state. So, which is what actually makes the war in Ukraine and uh, the proxy war with the West has been some kind of uh, ex- existential sh- uh, uh, um, struggle. But of course, you could you could trace that back. That kind of like you know concept. You know, the Bolsheviks, Stalin had a very similar kind of concept of the threat that uh, that uh, the West uh, posed post their regime. And, and the same is true to a certain extent of, of, of desires. Yeah, so so obviously clearly, you know, uh, individuals' historical narratives very much shapes their consciousness and view at present. I, 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 that, that's uh, that, that, that's absolutely true. Mm. I mean, can Alexander. I just say... <laughs> Yes, yeah. I was just going to say another thing about this, which is just just going, you know, taking a step back. I mean, there's obviously the way the Russians conduct foreign policy, and there's continues some continuities, and there's also very great changes. But one of the problems is that I think that Westerners have a mythology of not just continuity, but identity, which does, you know, in the sense in the sense of sameness, which does not reflect the changes. So Putin is Stalin. Stalin is, you know, the successor of, you know, Ivan the Terrible and Peter the Great. Mm. Um, you have sure. almost identical tropes <laughs> trotted out whenever there's a problems with Russia, which is nearly all the time, by the way. I mean, we have occasional interviews, intervals when things are a little better. But there is this idea that's very powerful, 
amongst many, many people, that this is this terrifying, ominous, all-encompassing, massively threatening, hugely dangerous, uh, all-conquering empire in the East, which we have to constantly mobilize, fight against, try to push back, break up, whatever it is, because if we don't, they will they will sweep us away. And that this is somehow in its genetic code and it will and it, and you know it basically it will never change. And you have some people in Poland, I know you know quite a lot, you're quite familiar with Polish debates, but you see a lot of this coming out in Poland as well, which is I, I find it really rather concerning when it comes from there. But yeah. Isn't this also one of our fundamental problems now that people just cannot understand that, you know, Russia changes. It's never it's not always the same place. Russian policy is adaptive. It's pragmatic. It shifts. Sometimes it's ideological as well. But there's no more single line, simple yeah. explanation for yeah. Russia than, that some people have. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the kind of views you just you know, summarised that, you know, they're, they're, they're just persistent and recurrent, yes? Sometimes they, they go away or they have a less of a kind of, like, voice, in the, uh, uh, but, but, but they, they, keep, they keep coming back. And, of course, they come back with a vengeance uh, in, in, the current, uh, in the current conjecture. Okay, so the question is, how do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah? How do you... How do you uh, combat it, if you like? Okay, okay. And, and one one way of combating it is um, you can come up with your own like series of generalizations, yeah, about the nature of Russian history and its leaders and yeah, the patterns or whatever. And okay, and and, and that's certainly a literate way of approaching it. Yeah, okay. But but as a historian, yeah, that's not that's yeah that, that's a, that's a kind of political approach. Fine, no problem with that. But as a historian, I don't I don't see that as being has been my, my kind of main role. My, my main role is to to deconstruct those tropes through like specific kind of concrete research. Yes, um, you know, to, to actually to demonstrate in detail why they don't they don't actually hold water. And actually, there's there's an interesting example of that, um, which may bring us on to a next topic of discussion, which was, um, you know, uh, you know, when, 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 when the, the, the Russia-Ukraine war broke out, okay, I was quite shocked, like most people. I wasn't actually that surprised, but I was still, I half expected it, but I was still quite, quite shocked. So, you know, I, I, like everyone, people like us who are engaged with this, I'm trying to understand what's happened. Why did this 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 huge kind of event event happen? And and and, and lots of people are doing the same thing. And, and and what's happening is that you know everyone is re reaching for their favorite kind of theory of Russian history or their favorite theory of Putin or what what the underlying dynamic of his policy is or what the pattern is, you know, whatever it might be. Everyone and and I, and I talk, no, I'm not going to do that. What I'm going to do, I'm going to do my job. As a as a diplomatic historian, I'm going to look in detail at the detailed historical record uh, uh, in relation to the origins of the war. So I wrote this article, um, which is which is which is called you know, "Now I Never," uh, you know, Putin's preventative, uh, the origins of Putin's preventative war on Ukraine. And my argument in, in that piece is based on a detailed analysis of. Um, of the evidence we have available of Putin's thinking, which is basically his speeches and statements, was that you know Putin took this very radical, very uh, risky, um, adventurous decision for war because he thought he saw the emergence of a, 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 a dire 
a threat in the form of uh, 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 Ukraine being turned into some kind of NATO bridgehead on Russia's borders, which at some point in the future, not immediately, would actually well, you know, would get involved in, in some kind of a, a big war with, uh, with Russia. Okay, and I chose to do it this way because I wanted to demonstrate in detail to actually show this is what happened as far as we know, as far as we can tell. Of course, you know, in the future, there may be more evidence, uh, and you know, maybe my, my view will, will may be wrong and, or, or need, need, need to be changed. But at the moment, this is this is what we can what we can know. So I'm just trying to explain how I'm trying to. <laughs> I, I share your concern about these. Well, I think they're very dangerous uh, tropes. Um, for explain how, how how I'm trying to actually deal with them or meet them or make a contribution to you know uh, uh, spreading a bit of enlightenment. Uh, uh, about Putin, Russia, and, and, and all that kind of thing. Absolutely. The record is essential. And one of the most important parts of the record is paying attention to what people say, what the Russians say, what Putin says, which we don't get anything like enough of in the West. And the more people do that, the more they explain or, or, or you know go through the history and the various point talking points, the more we should pay attention to this, especially, and I, you know, I'm, not, I'm, not getting, I'm not making direct analogies here, but you know, we see that a lot of what Stalin said in public is no different from what he was <laughs> saying in, in private. Now, I don't, you know, we don't know whether that same is true of Putin, but I'm going to venture my own opinion. I think it is. I think if, you know, were a fly on the wall in the Kremlin, over the last couple of months and years, you would probably find that Putin was actually talking much in the same way to his, um, you know, colleagues as saying much the same things as he was in public. That is my view, but I, you know, I, I think it is a justifiable one. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I would share that view. And my kind of experience as historian, you know, uh, you know, working in the Russian archives thousands of documents, hundreds of files about Soviet foreign policy, yeah, <laughs> and, 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 and you know, viewing that story from the inside, it's quite clear that story from the inside is not fundamentally different from the story that you can see from the outside, you know, by, by and large, you know, the Soviets, when they spoke, meant what they say, yeah, and, and, and I, I, there's, there's, I, I have no reason to believe that, that we won't find that to be the case with Putin, when hopefully at some point in the future, Historians get access, uh, 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 yeah, get access to our, uh, his archives. Actually, it, John uh, John Mearsheimer, um makes a very important point in relation to this. Because some people say, well, yeah, you can't trust what Putin says. Um, he's a liar. That's basically what they say. And Mearsheimer, he 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 he, yeah, he he wrote this book, quite a small book, really really good book called Why Do What Why Do Politicians Lie? And what he says in that book is that actually politicians mostly don't actually lie and particularly they don't actually lie to each other yeah they lie to their domestic audience yeah for domestic purposes but when they're dealing with foreign policy international relations when they're addressing um other leaders of other countries they actually grow to go to a great deal of lengths to actually not to lie to actually be as clear as they can to make it clear because there's because of this huge the huge stuff is at stake in in those ex, ex, external relationships. So, so I don't believe um, when 
I don't believe that Putin's lying when he again and again returns to this theme of this you know, emerging existential danger to Russia uh, in the future. And it's better to meet that danger now, to nip it in the bud to launch, he didn't use this word, but my word, to launch a preventative war to guarantee Russia's future security. Well, the reason I ask about the, the, the past informing the present is because, again, we often cite Stalin to uh, you know, explain Putin. But my, 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 my point was that, um, <clears throat> to a large extent, Putin, he's, uh, he has uh, done a lot to, instead of... Um, uh, whitewashed Stalin. He seems to have whitewashed the white Russians to a larger extent by having this reburial of white Russians who are, uh, yeah, who are put in exile. But, but also, yeah, recommendation of books from Putin, which often is the Eurasianist uh, conservatives, which went to exile. So Trubetskoy, uh, Savitsky, and uh, and the likes. Of course, that doesn't mean this is what informs all his thoughts. Uh, it's just interesting that this is. Uh, um, not not necessarily without going after the red Russians, but by by uh, by yeah yeah I mean, that, that that's one of the many like misconceptions about Putin that you know he he whitewashes Stalin he whitewashes um, Soviet history that kind of but but yeah but having said that Putin has a lot more time for Stalin than he does for Lenin Putin is much much more critical of Lenin because he sees you know he sees Lenin as creating um what's the word an unstable state structure whose chickens come home to roost in in the post-Soviet period and particularly in the form of the breakdown of relations with Ukraine so so Putin is is much more um he's much more sympathetic to Stalin as a state builder yes he's sympathetic to that aspect of Stalin's project, building a strong uh, Soviet state. And he's also sympathetic, I think, to Stalin's um, multinationalism. Yeah, it, it is, it is, the effort to create, you know, um, you know a, a multinational state uh, based on a, a common kind of patriotism. And that seems to me, talking about continuities, that's, that, that, that sort of structure is one of the huge you know, continuities from Soviet to post-Soviet Russian history is that the Russian Federation is the Soviet successor multinational state. And that multinationalism, uh, that um, you might call it civic nationalism or, or patriotism, uh, it, it remains a very strong part of the Russian Federation's identity, at least under Putin's leadership, because there are plenty of like ethnic Russian nationalists out there who would want to change that, would 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 want to make Russia into a much more ethnically nationalist state in terms of identity. But Putin, so far at least, is holding the past against that and, and insisted and, and insisted on this continuity, this continuity of multinationalism, not not just the Soviet period, of course, but also going back to the Tsarist period when this multinational start was was first constructed. In fact, he returns to it repeatedly in speech yeah. after speech, and he's extremely critical of the ethnicist people. Um, I had a, you know, right at the start of the war, I had a, 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 an argument with, you know, an email argument with somebody who was talking about Putin being this ethnicist nationalist. And I said, you know, this is, you've got the man wrong. I mean, this is not what he is about at all. And you're absolutely correct. This is, I mean, this is a feature of Stalin's policies. Again, it's, this wasn't something that was always said when I was a student. You know, there was a lot of people who said, you know, despite me being a Georgian, he was somebody who fostered, you know, Russian nationalism. The implication was, you know, that the Russians were the ethnic glue that held the Soviet Union together and that they were somehow the priority nationality. I don't see in 
Stalin's library any evidence of that whatsoever. I mean, no. can, can, it doesn't can, seem as if that was the case. Can I, can I just interrupt this? Go back to, you know, this, You're not interrupting, the discussion I'm about, the discussion about um, you know, continuity and, and persistence and patterns, where does it come from? Mm. So we just discussed, we agree, you know, um, Putin mm. sees himself as a kind of a, a Russian patriot, yes? And, you know, a, a, a Russian state based on multinationality, not on, 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 on ethnic nationalism, right? So and, and he as an individual played a very, very important role in maintaining that, that, that identity, that function of the Russian Federation. Maybe about Putin, maybe someone else, it would be completely different, possibly, couldn't it? Right. Okay, so the question is, where does that come from? Where does that Putin, Putin's multinationalism, patriotism, come from? It comes from here's an individual. It comes from his, of course, his experience of being brought up under the Soviet state, mm. with his very strong concepts of Soviet multinationality and Soviet patriotism. You know, it's just a, it, it, you know, Putin's patriotism is just another version of Soviet patriotism. But you see what I mean? You know, what 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 creates the continuity? What makes the, the continuity the reality is Putin as a person and his personal experience of life history and how he carries that forward. It, it's not some underlying essentialist kind of pattern or structure or, or hidden force that's forcing people into a particular box, you know, whether, they, whether, whether they like it or not. Yeah. So it's going to that back point about the way the, the, the human construct, all these patterns we see, these continuities, all this stuff, they're all a human kind of construction fundamentally. fundamentally. Regarding what you said earlier, though, this assumption or common argument that Putin's simply lying, it is an interesting one because uh, because in, in in regards to you know fearing you uh, fearing that Ukraine will become this uh, bridgehead, uh, American bridgehead to Russia, there seems to be a bit been confirmed from across the West. I mean, in 2008, I remember, uh, well, Angela Merkel, she said the reason why they didn't offer uh, the NATO map to Ukraine is she thought that this would be interpreted as a declaration of war. Well, that seems to confirm the Putin side in. And same as in November of uh, 2021, when the US and Ukraine signed this strategic agreement, which was seen as like a, making it a de facto NATO member, uh, the there was the, the the top advisor to former President Sarkozy. Uh, he said that this had convinced Moscow now that they either had to attack or be attacked. So uh, it, it's just very strange that it, it comes off as uh, yes, so, so, so suggesting that this was a lie. And the, the same kind of ideas or, or conclusion came from uh, the the top Russia analyst at the CIA, who also in December of 2021, argued that. Uh, you know, uh, the U.S. was getting so entrenched in Ukraine that uh, um, that uh, yeah, the risk of uh, not doing anything was becoming greater than the risk of actually doing something. This is why he, he predicted that there might be a Russian invasion. So it's uh, often one gets the impression from at least from the media here, though, that uh, this is all in Putin's head. And uh, even though uh, this has kind of been confirmed by many state leaders, ambassadors, uh, foreign ministers for at least since... Uh, 2008 especially so i'm i'm just wondering uh is it uh, uh yeah is it uh <laughs> do, do they really believe that putin is uh you know imagining these things or lying to them or well i i i would like to say <laughs> well i can say is this is that yeah yeah okay so it's the, the preventive war kind of thinking is is putin's creation putin's constructive like but it's not an, not a pure invention. You know, there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of good good grounds, good reasons, a um, lot of evidence 
which would, could lead one to come to the kind of conclusions that, that Putin came to. Okay, but that doesn't mean to say, you know, that he's right. And again, you know, it goes back to a point I was making there about the difference between, you know, explaining and understanding something and justifying. Because when I say, look, you know, Putin, you know, went to war because he saw a dire existential threat to Russia, not immediately, but coming in the future. That's why he did it, yes? So in that sense, it was a defensive and reactive thing. People think I'm actually justifying what he did. No, I'm actually not. No, I actually, I, I did, and I, I do disagree with Putin's action. Um, I, I, I think, you know, I, I think, you know, he, at the very least, he should have given more time for diplomacy to to play itself out to play its cause that 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 uh, that that is that is that is more uh, my view then the other thing i would say about this is that when um he takes this decision which is a very radical decision you know risky all that kind of thing i i don't think he imagined it would have the consequences it actually had yeah i think had putin known what he knows now what we know now about what has actually happened in the last year in, the, in in this war? I think he would have at least thought twice about whether yeah you know, whether it mm. might not might, might not have been best to actually mm. pursue other avenues to uh, uh, secure uh, the Russian position rather than uh, 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 mm. going to war. Oh, by the way, I'm preaching to the choir a little bit. Oh, sorry. I just uh, I have had the yeah, the same experience uh, tens of times over here. I. I've been trying to explain Russia's motivation that they mm. saw this as being defensive in terms of yeah. uh, NATO coming to its borders. Uh, in it's either attack or be attacked, and uh, I have the same problem. But trying to explain the thinking, mm. the motivation. So again, not waking up one day craving new mm. territories, but seeing this as being defensive war is very hard because that's very difficult for many people. Seems to distinguish between explaining something and justifying it. So I'm saying this is how, this is why they did it. And but also uh, very much like yourself, I say I, I don't agree with it. I think uh, there was uh, still time for diplomacy. There was, uh, you know, you had other alternatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, not not all peaceful means have been exhausted. You can argue, but but it, it's impossible. I've, I've tried to explain this a million times. It doesn't matter. You get crucified in the media if you yeah. try to explain. It's always interpreted as legitimizing something. It's it's quite absurd. But uh, yeah, that's where where we are. It's, I also uh, find it, I also find it quite upsetting sometimes. People's willful misunderstanding refusal to actually listen to what you say and, and take note of what you say and deal with what you're saying what your actual position is just in complete inventing projecting onto you some a position of view that you don't actually hold a ball i, I, I really well I find it annoying but also find it quite upsetting well, on occasion well well can i make him uh, an ex-lawyer's observation that one of the reasons and as an ex-lawyer you wouldn't be surprised that you encountered that kind of reaction one of the reasons people don't want to listen to your views is because deep down they know that there might be something in them (laughs) and they don't want to face up to that fact because if they did face up to that fact then that might call into question some of the actions that the west the western powers have taken and i don't think we need any great foresight here or hindsight here i mean i can remember way back in 2008 when that disastrous nato meeting took place where NATO or, or Ukraine was promised NATO membership at a time when most people in Ukraine didn't want NATO membership. I said, you know, I, I had a discussion with someone not far from where I live, by the way, but, you know, somebody who was 
I would say he was directly involved in these decisions, but he was on the fringe, if you like, of policymaking. And I said, you know, given Ukrainian history and Russian history and the interconnections between these two countries and the historic interconnections of these countries and the way the Russians feel about uh, uh, NATO expansion altogether and the way in which they feel that they've been ignored and disregarded about all of these things, surely you must understand that if you're going to go to Ukraine, you need to tread carefully. This is not a place where you should just march in and say, you know, you want this and you want that and you want this to happen and um, make it all a point of principle that it must be as you wish, because if you do, if you do behave like that, there's a risk that it will shatter. Now, I said that to this person in 2008. I remember we had a huge argument. It was in a hotel, by the way, <laughs> in a hotel lobby. And, um, you know, he absolutely refused to see that then. And I can guarantee to you, if I was to meet this person again, we've never met since then, by the way. If we were to meet again, he would refuse to see it now. But that doesn't make what I said to him then wrong. And I would say, and of course he wouldn't agree, the events that have happened since show that there was force to the point I, the points I was making. The, the paradox, of course, is if you don't recognize it, then you do, uh, you um, you prevent the ability to prevent it. And uh, what I mean is, in 2008, you had the American ambassador to to Russia, uh, William uh, William Burns, making this point that uh, you know if if we he threatened to expand NATO to Ukraine. He warned, you know, it will uh, disrupt uh, Ukraine. It will cause a civil war, and Russia will probably intervene, even though it doesn't want to do so. Again, not me. That's the ambassador, American ambassador, and this is kind of J John Mersheimer's argument as well. If you put a NATO in Ukraine, it's a bit like putting a Russian military base in in Mexico. It will not be accepted, and they will destroy it, uh, just like the Americans would, you know, level Mexico if they would have have to. Now, by recognizing this reality. Uh, you you can prevent it. You 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 yeah. You, you don't take that step. But the the problem I find is that you're not allowed to explain uh, what what the motivations are. Because if you're saying they're defensive, you're legitimizing it. But by pretending Russia doesn't fear uh, NATO on its borders, mm -hmm. um, yeah, we're just kind of walking towards a cliff, uh, blindfolded. So it's a it's a strange time to be <laughs> to be an academic. Because uh, yeah. <laughs> But, but having said that, there has been a, quite a lot of pushback against those kind of Western notions, yeah? So, yeah, uh, yeah it's not just us, us three, uh, making these arguments, taking position. Mm. There's a lot of people out there who are articulating similar kinds of views. And, yeah, I, I mean, I, and I, I'm convinced there's, there's quite a depth of, um, you know, public support uh, uh, who see the sense in in, in, in in what we're saying. We have to understand the Russian point of view, right? Um yeah, we we if because we need to actually bring this war to an end as 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 soon as as soon as as soon as possible. And and if we don't understand what the Russian point of view, what 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 the future holds, at least as far as we can know it, we're not we're not going to be able to see a clear path to actually do what we can to bring this war to an end and find some kind of um uh, some some kind of uh, peace zone. And I think I have to say the impression I have is that apparently our kind of view. Uh, is 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 getting more vociferous 
there's more of a presence of it, and I think it's generating uh, you know, more 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 more, uh, more, more popular results. Uh, so, so, so maybe, it, it, yeah, maybe things are going to be, get a little bit more comfortable for us in the future. Hopefully, it'll be, it'll be more willing to listen to what we have to say with an open mind. Yeah, I complete. I completely agree. Can I just get just, uh, Glenn? No, no, I was going to say that. Well, that's again, the, um, I think that's why uh, John Mersheimer has become so uh, so popular now, because, you know, for eight years, he said, you know, well, well, what you think is helping Ukraine, we're leading him down as he terms it, the primrose path, like we're leading Ukraine to its destruction. And then the people who have been pushing Ukraine to destruction, they are the peacemakers, while the one who's warning for eight years, this will this will push Russia towards invading. He's become seen as, you know, he was accused of legitimizing an invasion. So it's kind of, I think people are kind of picking up a little bit on this, uh, uh, this weird think, moral argument. Yeah, I think I, I have a lot of time for what Mr. Thomas says uh, and his sort of analysis of what happens on, but his prognosis is very, very pessimistic, isn't it? He, 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 you know, he doesn't see how either side can step back from this. I mean, at one point he was saying, well, maybe the only thing that can happen is if, is if we actually get a really serious escalation and then you get a couple of tactical nuclear weapons used. Maybe that will sober up the West. Maybe at that point they'll say they need to close this close this, this thing down. So mm. I'll, I'll be a bit... I mean, John's a, John's a realist, of course, but he strikes me as also very deeply, deeply pessimistic. And I'm not sure how helpful that is in the current situation. I think we have to retain a degree of, uh, of optimism about finding a way through this like a crisis which i think is an existential crisis for for for, for, I, I, uh, for us all i i completely agree i mean i should say i mean every one of us i'm sure has gone through periods of, of gloom during this yeah. period and there have been moments when i you know i felt this is really getting out of control and where is this all going but i want to say two things in response firstly to the, to the points made firstly that it's important to remember that our the, you know, the points that we have been made, making, they may not get very much articulation in the West, but they are very, very widely understood outside. You follow, you know, media commentary in India, for example, which is a country which is, has an English speaking media. And you can see that people there understand perfectly well how, where all this has led to. But they are now seeping in to the West as well. I mean, it's not just the worm of doubt. The worm of doubt has grown into something much bigger than that. There are more and more people, I think, who are beginning to understand that things are not shaping out as they were and that perhaps all kinds of mistakes were made along the way. And I'm going to say this, I think the next six months are going to be pivotal in this conflict. This is my own feeling. I think provided we can get through them without the same the kind of accidents than well maybe not accidents crimes that Mearsheimer is talking about, which I think we will, then I think that the whole debate will change just as it did you know after the admittedly far smaller crises in Iraq you know the Iraq war and all that uh, people will look back and they will say well a lot of the mistakes were made. And a lot of people, I think, also are going to feel very ashamed of some of the things that they've been saying, because this has been one of the great shocks for me during this war. One of the things I never expected, this huge, visceral attack 
on Russian things, on Russian culture, which I know has been happening and the justifications of it. And I know some of the people who've been talking in this way, and I cannot believe that when it's all over, they won't look back and read and think about some of those things that they've said and feel very ashamed about the fact that they've said those things. That's my own view. I, I, I hope you're right, Alexander. But mm. I fear you're, you're wrong about that. That last, that last point. Uh, I think you know people will look back and they will they will, they will search for various ways to rationalise the craziness, <laughs> the stuff they were saying uh, at, 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 at the time. You know, um, you know they'll say, "Oh yeah, well, you know, had we done something else, it would have turned turned out turned out better." Or there was no alternative. Or you know. Things could, you know, it would have been worse had we hadn't taken this particular action, and and uh, you know we were going involved in this pro- proxy. I think I, I really, I don't know. I, I, I suspect we're going to see a lot of like post hoc rationalisation uh, of these, uh, of complete, of what, in my view, are completely untenable uh, uh, positions. But maybe I'm, hopefully I'm wrong. Well, we, I mean, I think we're heading towards. A debacle, a debacle for everybody, but especially for those people who, I th- you know, marched in without paying much attention to what happened. And of course, they will rationalise and they will defend and they will insist that they were right all along. Some people will do that. Many people will do that, but an awful lot of others yeah. who were swept along with it. I think that it's they who I'm thinking about. Not you know, not, there are some people who will take a step back. And they will look at what's happened to Ukraine, which has been destroyed every single day that passes. It's been destroyed. You only have to read newspaper articles, as I've just been doing in the Washington Post, about the way in which people are dying in Ukraine. You know, the the men in Ukraine are being killed in terrible ways. And they will also look at, you know, what the wreckage of relations that we now have. And I think that. And, you know, this extraordinary attack on Russian culture and Tchaikovsky and Rizorsky and <laughs> Chekhov and all of that. And I think they will say to themselves, you know, I got swept along and even I went too far. And I think you will see some people who will come to that view eventually. I hope I, so. I believe so. I want to believe it. And maybe it's the wish that's the father to the thought, but I do want to believe it. Maybe it's the wish that's father to the actuality, you know, going back to our early discussion about, you know, sort of human creation, yeah. my argument. Yeah, um, yeah I, can, I tend to agree with, with you, Alexander, about the West is, is is heading towards a debacle. What worries me, what, what might happen on the way to that debacle and the kind of desperate measures which which last throws you know last rolls of the dice or the last cards that are played in order to, in some kind of effort to avert that debacle or at least pretend it's actually not 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 happened. So I, I'm inclined to think you know the closer we get to the debacle, the, the, the more dangerous the situation gets in terms of the whole the whole escalation thing. So yeah. in kind of one way, I'm I'm more worried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In one way, okay, you read all the stuff that's going on, and there are my like voices of reason and sanity out there, and doubts creeping in, and you know, divisions of opinion in the Western establishment. That's all good. But on the other hand, the crazies are still crazy, and they're getting, they're getting even more crazy and more extreme in the things that are out there advocating. Uh, so I, I just fear that you know there might be some kind of miscalculation about how how far the West can go in getting involved uh, in the war and prosecuting it, 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 it's 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 proxy war. 
Absolutely. I, I, well, I, I mean, certainly that danger exists and it's very real and we should never underestimate it. And in the meantime, we have to go on doing what we're doing. And, we, you know, we, you were talking about the importance of, your, um, you know, not creating counter myths, but going to the record. And, you know, it's all, you know, Putin is a human being. He makes mistakes. He does things wrong. We can criticize him as much as you like. You can say that, you know, he shouldn't have done this or he shouldn't have done this. And his actions in some ways have contributed to these effects. But that doesn't mean you can't explain the man and how he thinks the way he does think and why the people around him, because this is an important point to remember, just as, you know, the people around Stalin went along with many of his decisions, the people around mm. Putin have, you know, support. He's, there's been no significant defection from his leadership group over the last year. I mean, you know, all of the ministers are still there. All of the experts are still there. The central bank chair is still there. Many people thought she would walk out. The finance minister is still there. So they all clearly feel some kind of, well, they share at least at some levels his analysis and that is important and one shouldn't overlook it it's not just one crazy individual you know getting up one fine morning saying you know they're all out to get me and I must react in the way that I have it, it, it clearly isn't like that so you know one has to explain that one has to point these things out one has to understand that if you're going to preserve peace which should always be a priority, maybe not the only priority, but certainly a you know, key priority in maintaining international relations. I, I was somebody who, anyway, I, I, I was just going to say, no, I, no, I, no, I, so, I, so Alexander, look, there's nothing more important than peace. Yeah. That, that, that's one thing this uh, experience has taught me, actually not taught me intellectually, but yeah. taught me emotionally. This war is, I really feel it now, yeah? The, 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 the supreme importance of the peace, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, as just to quickly say, I mean, I, I, I witnessed political violence in my childhood and youth in Greece. And to, to be straightforward about it, when that happens, nothing positive ever comes from it with peace opportunities exist which don't come about in war and that's something people need to understand so maintain peace if you want to promote human rights in russia which you know that's what you want to do understand that peaceful peace is the way to do it not constant you know wars regime change operations all that kind of thing and um i i hope people will understand that and I think that more and more people will, and the more things are explained to them, the more people who, the more people will start to think that too. That's all I want to say. I was just going to say when we talk about peace, uh, hopefully this will resolve in a peace one day. Uh, to a large extent, of course, the Ukraine crisis, uh, you know, represents the collapse of the European uh, security architecture, which kind of is linked to a bit to the work of uh, yeah, Professor Roberts in. Uh, in terms of the ability to create this uh, yeah, peace with Russia, because, um, uh, well, in my opinion, at least the key reason why we have this war now would be the failure after the Cold War to establish a post-Cold War uh, common system. Again, initially we had disagreements with uh, Gorbachev and then uh, Yeltsin to have uh, an inclusive security institution, the OSCE, but then we saw that the NATO was chosen instead as uh, to well, expansion of NATO as Russia was weak. But... Uh, 
but but this was kind of the the last failure to establish a, a peace with with Russia, in which you know first they want a common security institution, then they suggested, well, we could join NATO as a political institution. They they suggested uh, you know create a new pan-European security architecture under Medvedev. They suggested the EU-Russian Union. So uh, the different formats for reorganizing Europe instead of just creating one big Europe where everyone's included except. Russia, uh, at least in my opinion, this was a huge trigger to why, uh, well, why I think the war in Ukraine is a bit of a symptom for this collapse of the European security architecture. Now, the reason I also bring it up because uh, I uh, we often get, get told that uh, that we we could have avoided the Cold War as well to some extent. Uh, this is uh, yeah some of your work on. Um, on the proposals from the Soviet Union to join NATO and other efforts by Moscow to end the Cold War in the 1950s. Uh, some say that this was just, uh, you know, deceit, uh, other to weaken or fragment the West. Others saying it's authentic. So as we have the leading Soviet uh, uh, scholar with us now, uh, what are your perspectives? Do you see, yeah. uh, do you see these as being authentic or deceptive? Well, one of the themes of my research on the history of foreign policy has been missed opportunities, yeah? Missed opportunities to, to form a grand alliance against Hitler before the Second World War, missed opportunity to continue the grand alliance after the Second World War and to prevent the Cold War, missed opportunity to, um, uh, to, to bring the Cold War to an end in the mid-1950s, numerous missed opportunities to uh, incorporate and include Russia in, in some kind of pan-European security structure. Okay, and that's just, that, that is not, as far as I'm concerned, that's not just wishful thinking on my part. I mean, that's something which in my work I've sought to demonstrate in detail, to show from, you know, uh, you know the archival record that that was the case. So, for example, you know, uh, uh, you mentioned, uh, you alluded to the fact that in 1954, um, the Soviet Union proposed that perhaps possibly the Soviet Union um, could become a member of, of NATO, uh, could join join NATO. If NATO was a defensive organisation, then the Soviet Union would like to be a member of the organisation. Okay, and at that time, it was dismissed as a, a piece of propaganda. And to a certain extent, it was. It was propaganda. Obviously, they were making propaganda. But what we know from the records... Uh, is that it was actually a genuine proposal by the Soviets. They were interested in the possibility of Russia, sorry, Soviet Union becoming part of NATO as part of a grander project to creating uh, an all-encompassing European mm -hmm. security system. And you can see that in the documents. In fact, I published the key documents on this so that people can go online and they can see for themselves and make up their own mind. Interesting point about um, in relation to NATO uh, expansion. Um, uh, originally, I wasn't against NATO expansion. I had no problem with NATO uh, expansion um, because I saw it within the perspective of NATO expansion being an aspect of the development of a broad European collective security system. So, I, so for many, many years, I was all in favour of NATO expansion in Europe, right, on the basis that this expansion is sure that would eventually include Russia, yeah? So there's nothing wrong, inherently wrong with NATO expansion. <laughs> the problem was when it turned into an anti-Russia expansion, when it turned into not, uh, an, an aggressive uh, for, for, form of expansion. Mm. That was the moment at which I turned against uh, uh, NATO expansion. 
Absolutely. I mean, can I just say the other thing that I found is very interesting is, uh, again, I can remember people talking about this in my childhood, about Stalin's peace proposal for Germany in 1952. And apparently, as I understand it, he was serious about it. I mean, he really did suggest a neutral, united Germany. And this was not, as was suggested at the time, a ruse to try to, you know, destabilize Europe and, and expand Soviet influence. We are we have this recurring problem that the Russians do. I I, I mean I I am convinced of this. I think this is the one what we're talking about continuities. I think this is a continuity. I don't think the Russians have ever desired war in Europe. I think wars for them have always been incredibly difficult, incredibly damaging, sometimes catastrophic. They're also conscious that Europe, Western Europe is much richer, much more powerful ultimately than they are. They can't, I mean, no Russian leader, I think has ever fantasized about expanding Russian power across Europe in that kind of way. But I do think that they are concerned about the security. I do think they want a stable situation in Europe. I think this is understood during the detente period of the 1960s and early 1970s. And I think that decade of relative stability is what we should aspire to now. And I don't think it's unachievable. I think that, you know, it, it doesn't require a huge amount of give uh, on the part of the West. We don't need to make massive concessions or compromise our core interests in order to achieve that kind of understanding. And I think if we do, we'll have a much more stable international environment. Russia will no doubt continue its process of evolution, which it has been undertaking like all countries do. And, you know, can do that without having to peer over each shoulder all the time. And all of us can breathe more easily and more safely. So I don't understand why there is always this opposition to doing these things to doing something like this i mean the, 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 okay whenever i took my um historian's hat mm -hmm. off to discuss contemporary uh, mm -hmm. western russian relations it was always to make the argument in favor of of detente you know that a, a pro detente mm -hmm. um yeah. position um yeah okay uh, anti-cold war pro predator position that was my political positioning here you know untold number of letters i've written to newspapers or articles i've written uh putting forward that particular and particularly i got i got more and more drawn into the pro detente um argument after 2014 and and the ukraine crisis yeah yeah and that, that's still my position i have to say i'm not sure i see see a clear way back to forward and back to that at the moment i think even in the best case scenario um the damage that's been done to uh, russian western relations by, by the ukraine war is is going to take years if not decades to, to work to work themselves mm -hmm. through so i think that you know the best we can hope for is some form of peaceful coexistence or you know a, a mm -hmm. cold peace if you like yes uh, yeah, yeah okay yeah I think we, we we might be able to um uh, avoid a new cold war or i think that term's very inadequate to talk about what we're talking about but but mm. but we, we might be able to we might be able to avoid a new cold war but i think it's going to be very very difficult to avoid having a prolonged cold peace in terms of russian western relations maybe that I'm is the, the best we can expect 
Oh, sorry. Mm. Well, a common denominator appears to be this um, uh, the, the alliance system, though, because again, from in the 1950s, uh, a key thought was, you know, that uh, if if it would form something collective with the Soviet Union, it would, uh, you know, allow uh, you know the Russians to get in between the Americans and the Europeans, and you know, towards Gorbachev's, uh, uh, you know proposal of a uh, common European home and ending the Cold War, you similarly had this argument that, you know, this could be a peace offensive, you know, that this was even worse than threatening the West by coming out, offering friendship. It would allow, again, the Russians to put itself between the uh, Americans and the Europeans, weakening the alliance. And I remember 2008 when President Medvedev put forward this uh, proposal for a new European security architecture. That was also a key idea because that, uh, uh, that proposal even included, you know, preserving NATO just as long as it was positioned within the umbrella of uh, an inclusive security institution, uh, which uh, would be overriding. And this was also then seen as well as uh, the Russians, again, trying to weaken the solidarity of the West. That uh, So, you know, which begs the question, can we have solidarity without having <laughs> Russia as an adversary? Because every time someone suggests uh, we have we have to find a new security architecture, which uh, brings Russia on the inside, uh, the, the, the common comment is always, well, then they will be able to divide us and we have to be united to oppose Russia if in case they're bad. And this was also the argument by many uh, for NATO expansion, which both uh, Bill Clinton, James Baker confirmed, uh, and uh, Madeleine Albright that the NATO should be a uh, a security guarantee mm -hmm. against future conflicts with Russia. So so how can you... <laughs> yeah, that, that, I mean, Medvedev's uh, 2008 collective security proposal was very, very similar to the one that Molotov put forward uh, in 1954. And I'm sure the officials who actually drafted the, the, the Medvedev materials probably look back to the Soviet documents uh, uh, from that period. So that's another example of the way actual institutional kind of continuity can happen. But in the 1950s, uh, the reason that the West rejected these kind of Soviet overtures for a common collective security system was because they thought that the Soviet Union was the threat. From the Soviet point of view, they thought a, a German resurgence was a threat. So that's why you needed a common European system to contain the German danger. But from the Western perspective, it, it wasn't the German danger they were worried about. They were worried about the Soviet threat and the Soviet danger. And the same thing happens in the post-Soviet Soviet period. The reason that the West rejects Medvedev's and other proposals like that is because they see Russia as being the security, it's being the security problem in Europe. They see Russia as the threat. And it's not until there's a fundamental shift in that Western perspective and attitude, it's not until we get to that point uh, th that there's going to be any realistic possibility of coming to some common kind of security arrangements in Europe. And I think because of the war, it's it, it, it's, it's going to take a long time mm -hmm. to, uh, to, to arrive at that point. Having said which, even a cold peace is better than a hot one. <laughs> and you know, if that's all we can get at the moment, then you know, I, I, I would, um, I would, I would go for it. I mean, it's not, it's not, you know, the optimal outcome. Not certainly not the one I would like to see. And maybe we can get to something better eventually. But I, I think a cold now, peace. I think a cold peace yeah. would be a wonderful outcome, a fantastic outcome uh, if we could, we, we could achieve that. Yeah, I could die happy. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. 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 But actually, maybe I can do a little bit of plug for my next book. 
my mm. next project, which is about the history of the peace movement. Yeah, mm. <laughs> it's called Stalin's Peacemakers. So it's history of the the communist led peace movement from the nineteen forties through to uh, the, the the late nineteen the late late nineteen sixties. Yeah, so that's my my next mm. one coming down. But that might be uh, a few years before that appears. Absolutely. Well, uh, can I just say, Jeff Roberts, you've written some amazing books, and uh, one which I proudly have. It's behind me somewhere there's Churchill and Stalin which I thought was an extraordinary book by the way I should quickly say that when it comes to Stalin I think that Churchill in his memoirs I think Fred probably agree with this is one of the promoters of many of the myths that have circulated about Stalin sure. and I think he's pen picture of Stalin because he's a brilliant writer Churchill was a brilliant writer very clever very witty man is a compelling one but as Stalin's library has shown, it's actually wrong in many important respects. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a brilliant book. And it shows that, you know, two leaders, Russian, British, seminal leaders of these two countries in the 20th century, actually developed a very, very real respect for each other. And, you know, in critical moments, they could work together as well. And they understood each other. Um, in ways that no British leader today seems to seems capable of understanding the Russians. So that is, I found actually a book that gives me hope because <laughs> it showed that it could be done. So, you know, if, if Churchill can do it and Stalin can do it, then surely someone in Britain can do it as well. Well, on that very optimistic note, uh, yeah, we'll uh, wrap it up. But uh, yeah, before we go, just again, uh, uh, yeah, excellent, excellent book. Uh, make sure it's part of your library as well, which is uh, uh, Stalin's library. So yeah, get a copy. Uh, and uh, yeah, thanks for tuning in. And uh, thank you as well uh, for, uh, for your time, uh, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for such a great conversation.